This is the Convo Lounge. Expression, exposure, experience. We're on episode eight of the season two of Convo Lounge, our podcast. And uh, like we've been saying, we are talking any and everything around the creative industry uh, just to find out uh, what insights are there, opportunities that are there in the creative space. And if you're going to talk about creativity and the creative space, it's also very important to touch on issues of intellectual property because oftentimes it comes up that a lot of people get the wrong of that millions of hard-earned cash or what they actually deserve and we are privileged to have in studio uh one of the i think you're the first person to set up an uh, ip uh firm <laughs> in in the country advocacy firm in the country um i will preface that by saying i'm not the first okay. uh, person to practice intellectual property law in Botswana, but yes. I am the first person to set up an intellectual property consulting firm in Botswana. Okay. Yes. So let's talk about that then. How did it get to to, to, to go um, for you to actually get to set up uh, such a firm? Um, it was the result of a very long process that I think be- began in my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> because I've always been, um, I think I've always been fascinated by creativity. I've always been fascinated by, you know, the sciencey stuff. So creation of new things in a Innovation has always been something that has always been in my bloodstream. Yeah. And then I pursued a law degree and I think the combination of my law degree and my passions over life kind of just directly led me to intellectual property as the one area that really resonated with me. Yeah. Uh, so then after I completed my um, undergrad, I was shopping around. I was looking for, you know, to work for a law firm that could help me get on this intellectual property track. And I wasn't having a lot of luck. Yeah. Um, I wasn't having a lot of, um, I wasn't finding the right fit. I wasn't finding the kind of place that would give me the work that I wanted to do. So essentially I decided, okay, I'll set up a consulting firm then. Yeah. So and you are so not stranger to creativity, like you say. I understand you also had an agency, um, a DM. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about that. <laughs> yes, um, it was not my agency. Yeah. It was started by a very good friend of mine, Tepelo Barakire, and I joined him very early on. It was called DM Creative Brands. I think it was one of the first. Uh, one of the first few brand management firms in Botswana. Yeah. And, you know, we were chartering uncharted territory. It was a good time. Yeah. yeah. During that time, um, through your GM uh, creatives, uh, what happened? Was there something that actually happened for you to also, you know, see that there is an opportunity for you to be practicing um, IP law and actually uh, provide IP law services um, taking off from your know, DM creatives? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because during my time at DM Creative Brands, I got to manage I got to deal with a lot of public figures I got to deal with a lot of creatives I got to manage their business portfolios yeah and being a law student at the time um, of course I took every opportunity to apply what I was learning in the classroom to the work that I was doing at DM Creative Brands and upon my exit um, it was very obvious that this this is the field for me yeah and let's talk about the the IP um, the scene right now in Botswana or just maybe when you start um, the understanding of intellectual property um, mostly amongst us creators um, what is the the status quo right um, we're at a very exciting time firstly 
when we started, one of the major challenges that we had to address was there is an absolute lack of knowledge around what intellectual property is and what it is capable of being. And I think the latter part is more important because in as much as we've been building knowledge through hosting workshops over the past three years or so, we are still yet to get to a point where we feel that our constituents understand that intellectual property is an economic asset at the end of the day. Yeah, You can have copyright over your book it doesn't mean much if you can't put it in the market and derive economic value from it. Yeah. So we're at a point where we need to transition from knowing that you can have copyright to knowing what you can do in an economic sense with copyright. Yeah. 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 So when you look at um, that, uh, you know, IP issues in the country um, right now, you find that there are a lot of uh, creatives that are upcoming um, and we really need to start instilling this understanding of um, intellectual property in them, right? Um, what is intellectual property, if you could maybe explain it for, I don't know what sort of um, example would be easy uh, for somebody to actually grasp um, yeah. what IP is. Yeah. Uh, somebody who's watching uh, the podcast right now, listening to it, maybe what uh, they are doing it, could you know constitute at that um, IP and actually get to benefit from it? Yes. So there's no easy way to explain what IP is. Yeah. But safe to say, IP. When we speak of intellectual property, we're speaking of creations of the mind. Mm -hmm. And when we're speaking of intellectual property rights, we're speaking of the legal protections that attach to the creations that are a result of the application of human intellectual labor. So you sit down and you write a book, you're applying your mind, right? Yeah. You create a painting like the one behind us, you're applying your mind. Or you create a vaccine for COVID-19, you're applying your mind. So the legal consequences and the legal rights and entitlements that attach to that are called intellectual property rights. And it's a vast and broad field that includes... Um, protections that apply either to creative and innovative works uh, creative and innovative works like in the literature and in the art sphere sorry rather uh, or creations that are scientific mm. or creations that are as a result of historical uh, traditional cultural practices yeah. so there is a vast and broad universe that we could spend a year talking about. Yeah. So the important thing is to know that if you're applying your mind to produce something, there is certainly some kind of IP right that attaches to that. Yeah. And the key thing is figuring out which type of IP attaches to the kind of work that you are doing. Uh, one of the funniest things that happens in my work is somebody writes a book and says, I want to patent my book. Yeah. And I have to explain to them, you cannot, you can't. Patent, you cannot, you can have copyright of it. Yeah. You cannot patent it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but then um, it, that means then there is a, a lack of information um, that actually needs to be put out there to, to, to the people. How is your fam um, helping in that regard? Absolutely. Um, what we do is we host workshops. Yeah. Um, we host workshops. We try to make them as accessible as possible. The most recent one is we hosted an intellectual property masterclass for performers. So mm. we were dealing specifically with performers' rights. Um sort of capacitating and building on the kind of knowledge to say what what legal entitlements do you have and we also brought on board a company called Stum Kumo Studios rather uh, to say 
since they have the practical application of um, what it's like to be in the performance industry, we bring in the legal aspect, um, they bring in the practical aspect, we capacitate our constituents such that when they go out, they are able to function as productive market entities. So we have been doing these workshops since 2019. We've done some workshops in so far as Tanzania at some point, uh, but a majority of them we've done here in Botswana. And we will continue to be doing that for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Growing up, there's always been issues or news coming out of about IP, um, you know, the likes of, I think, legendary artists like Poprana Fancy. They've always been complaining to say they've been robbed of millions and all of that. Uh, where are we missing it, though? Um, where does the problem start? Knowledge is the problem. Yeah. Um, knowledge is the problem and the application of knowledge is the problem. Firstly, you have to know what you're entitled to. Yeah. I think what happened in the early days of the creative industry um, in Botswana and, you know, drawing also examples from South Africa is you have the creators being unaware of what they are entitled to. Yeah. And you have the business entities that monetize that creativity, the producers and the recording companies yeah. um, being in a position to know what the economic value of that creativity is but nobody's giving each other the information so I know what you're worth but I'm not going to tell you what you're worth right I'm willing I'm happy and able to take your creativity and monetize it Um, but because you don't know what you don't know I'm not going to bring you on board there's questions of ethics around that But most importantly, the more that we are in an environment where the creators are unaware of firstly what they're creating, the potential for what they're creating and the value of what they're creating, um, they are then unable to claim any sort of um, substantial benefit or substantial entitlement out of it. Because I could make, um, I could come up with a process that can produce, let's say, 10 million over the next five years yeah. if I walk into your office and I think I just came up with this idea on a Saturday um, I can give it to you for 5,000 yeah. right because I haven't really gained the knowledge uh, I haven't really done the research around what can this do in the market yeah. legally what am I entitled to out of this yeah. if I'm going to transfer this to someone what are the legal implications and what are the business implications? So knowledge is the problem. But then oftentimes like um, creatives, what they really always ever have to worry about is how do I become better? Uh, How do I bring out a better song than the one that I had um, last time? And I don't really need to be dealing with these um, fancy legal um, Mm -hmm. stuff. That is for Bullet Law to take (laughs) care of that on on my behalf. Um, How could we then maybe... Uh, try to change um, how things has been um, going, especially with these ones that are coming up. Mm. Um, to say, let's, um, in as much as you'd want to be focused on your craft yeah. and your creative process, but then also anything else that surrounds you, you really need to also have an understanding of it. How do you instill um, such in their mind? I mean, I think you have to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. For example, If you're creating music for the sake of creating music, then you don't really need to be worrying about IP because it doesn't matter whether you eat at the end of the day. If you're creating music 
as a as a as an artist who is running a business you are going to have to learn to behave as a business yeah. you don't go into business half prepared uh, you don't go into business thinking some things are your concern and others aren't yeah. it is your business at the end of the day and that's the unfortunate thing i think a lot of creatives locally need to shift from the I'm just a creative and I just want to create mindset. That's fine if you just want to create. But yeah. if you want to run a business out of your creativity, you have to think and act like a business. Yeah. Earlier on, you mentioned that, um, you know, IP has some sort of a contribution to the economic development of um, any economy. Mm. Um, what sort of examples or specific cases would you um, come up with that would actually show us a great display of entrepreneurship or job creation mm. in the economy through IP? I mean, we don't really have to go forward in Botswana. Yeah, the biggest market is the informal, you know, the, the informal sector in Botswana, and that informal sector largely comprises of people who are waking up every day to say, "I'm seeing a solution." A, a, a problem in my community and how can I be the solution to the problem there's a lot of I recently saw a backpack um, that could that captures sunlight and generates light yeah, solar, backpack. solar backpack so things like that there's so many young Botswana so many Botswana who are creating things like that there you look at our uh, traditional music uh, traditional music industry for example that's really one of my favorite examples to say um, there has been there's so many people that have drawn from the culture and our history to create new sounds to create um, new music that has traveled the world people now on TikTok are singing when I could like what's happening yeah. you see it, the, the ability of that to travel is one thing but the ability of that to also become an economic thing is you know is another thing that we need to take into consideration there was a study a few years ago 2-3 years ago that revealed that the creative sector in Botswana accounts for roughly around is it 3-5% to 5 of our our GDP that is yeah. huge yeah. so we are creating we just need to start behaving as people who are creating economic value yeah yeah all right let's go for a quick break when we come back we will continue with our conversation of the combo lounge podcast uh please do check it out and uh, let us know what you think on seven six uh five one triple nine two or use the hashtag combo lounge africa across the different social media platforms this is the convo lounge expression exposure experience Right, welcome back to the Convo Lounge podcast. And today we're talking intellectual property with an IP um, lawyer. Um, is it lawyer or advocate? <laughs> uh, I am an intellectual property consultant. Okay, international uh, intellectual property consultant. Yes. Yes. So uh, before we went to the break, uh, you were just touching on how, you know, a majority of the sector in Botswana, the informal sector would be the ones that would have a benefit to uh, that IP, right? Uh, maybe let's just try to break it down. Um, at what level um, do I now start in engaging you? Like I said, oh, mm. I am as a creative. I want to write a song. Yeah. Um, I just want to produce it and perform to the masses. Mm. But at what level do I then need to say, Mm, let me now go to the consultant. Yeah, because there's um, there's no formula to it. Um, because the, again, there's no formula to creativity. You could wake up in the morning and write a hit song, and yeah. then 
realize, oh, I need to do something. Or just it. say something on TikTok and then, and then you could like, I could have profited from that hashtag. Right, exactly. So yeah. it could either be that or it could be you wake up in the morning and you say, I want to do X, Y, Z. How do I structure what I'm about to do? Yeah. So there really is no method to it. But the most important thing is at the earliest opportunity where you realize the need to engage, uh, you know, somebody like myself, whether it's a consultant, whether it's a legal, you know, a legal brain, that's 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 the right time to do it at the earliest opportunity because what you don't want is to place your again it's an asset yeah. place your asset at risk and then come later when you have to um, fight off uh, against uh, people that are infringing on your rights a lot of the work that we do is um, surrounding infringement so clients come to us and they say uh, somebody has used my thing without my consent and um, how do I how do I stop them how do i get them to pay me back or how do i stop them from doing that and as much as that's work that we're very happy to do a lot of this um could be prevented if in the first place there were structures that were set in place to ensure that um your you know your registrations are in place your defense your prop intellectual property management framework is in place yeah <laughs> oftentimes uh, there's an issue about um, what proof then do you have um, to say I have a claim to um, this creation? Yeah. Um, what is the proof? Where do you... The proof is always the fun of the work. Yeah. Uh, for me, that's what, you know, with my legal background, of course, that's what I enjoy the most, being able to prove that there is a link between A and B. Yeah. But I cannot prove that link if you yourself do not leave breadcrumbs it's like a Hansel and Gretel kind of thing you have to leave breadcrumbs so that we're able to find you yeah. um, what I always advise clients is um, if you are pitching make sure that there's a written record uh, for example if you're sharing your ideas make sure that there's a written trail of records yeah. you, you step into a meeting you know and you're saying okay yeah I'm gonna build a spaceship that goes to the moon and like plants flowers on the moon and what 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 yeah. and then you leave the conversation and then you know you talk about it over the phone and then two years later um, BK has a rocket on the moon and you're saying but I spoke to him about this two years ago yeah. but there's no evidence that you ever said that yeah. right um, so you know you leave the meeting you send an email per our conversation yeah <laughs> as i said in our conversation you get them to acknowledge that there are other tools again ndas you can use ndas to say i'm about to disclose confidential information to you and you need to make a signed commitment that you're not going to use this information against or, or without my consent that's a tricky one because a lot of investors, if you're pitching to them and you're saying, I want you to sign an NDA, they're going to say, I don't even know what you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Right. And that's why for us, it was more important to not just be a legal um, entity, but a consulting firm broadly, because we understand, yes, the legal aspect is there and the legal aspect can be fun, but IP is business at the end of the day. You need to have a balance between, yes, these are my legal rights, but what are the business factors at play? If I'm going to approach uh, Microsoft and say I'm pitching them a software, are they going to sign an NDA? I'm just talking about from the tonic, yeah. right? How do I navigate that business setting? Yeah. yeah. And when you look at maybe the cost element to, to, to that, I'm just a startup, I'm yeah. just a creative that are just starting up. Yeah. And when you talk about going to a legal consultant mm. um, for advice, mm. you charge per hour. And <laughs> 
How does it look like? I do. Are you yeah. asking me what my fee is? Uh, yeah, yeah, something of that sort. <laughs> like, how expensive would it be? Like, for somebody who's listening in and would yes. want to, you know, type into that space, what yes. should they be prepared for? I mean, it 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 really depends on who you're engaging um, and what skill set they have. For me, my current fee is two thousand buya per hour. That's because I have a master's in intellectual <laughs> property from one of the biggest think tanks in the world. So yeah. when you're paying me two thousand an hour, you're paying for that level of expert advice. Yeah. Um, but we also have a um, SME discount because we realize that a large number, like you were saying earlier, you know the large number of creatives are in the small and medium enterprise sector the informal sector so these these are industries where there isn't really a steady cash flow yeah. um so we need to take that into consideration if we want to be helpful yeah. so we do have a 50% discount um for SMEs and you know creatives where we just say okay for at least for the consultation we will do this at half the price just so we help you uh, be able to you know get on your feet and get your things in order but over and above that again the workshops that we host because a key element of our workshops is accessibility yeah. so we charge very minimal fees that cover just the logistics um to make sure that at least if you can't afford to you know rent me for an hour you can come in with a group of other people and be in a room and you all have access to me for like the next 3 hours and we can you know talk it out. Yeah. That's yeah. very encouraging. Um let's talk about your master's degree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh you have a, a master's degree in intellectual property? Yes. Uh management. I have a master's degree in intellectual property and development policy. Okay. Yes. Uh from where? From the Korean Development Institute School of Public Policy and Management. How did that come about? Um I saw a post on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Um I saw a post on Twitter about a school hosting a session. Um I actually missed the session, but I requested information and I was sent the information and then I went on um the website and I applied. I was accepted to the school and then I applied for a scholarship from the World Intellectual Property Organization and I got the scholarship and I got to study in South Korea for about a year. Yeah. Yeah. The scholarship is it something that is um open uh, do they have it um yes. coming out every now and then or yes. So this the scholarship has a yearly intake the school and the scholarship have a yearly intake. Um I think the program starts the program starts in January every year so usually they take applications around uh, August September. Mm. Um so but it's an annual intake. So if you are interested in it, the school particularly it's a it's a policy school. Um what the school is is something that I think we should consider doing in Botswana is what the Korean government did back in the day is they realized that a lot of their best minds were outside of Korea, you know, working in the US and things like that. So what they did is they developed they built the Korean Development Institute and called all these Ivy League graduates back to Korea to basically be a think tank and inform government policy. So you have academics guiding government policy. and from that think tank developed the school um that I went to so yeah, yeah. so th- again 
it, it's, it has a yearly intake and you can apply if you're interested in public policy uh, if you're interested in intellectual property you can do that yeah so uh, w- what was your paper on um, did you have any paper that you had to write for your master's degree maybe you can touch on that yes so yeah. my master's research was on uh, ge- the utility of geographical indications and in bolstering economic development in um, in developing countries yeah. uh, geographical indications are a type of intellectual property that deal with the quality of a product as a result of um, its location of origin. So, for example, when you talk of champagne, you're talking about um, a specific kind of sparkling wine that was developed in a specific region of France under a specific method. So that's a kind of geographical indication. And my case study was basically my argument rather was to say can we have this for products from Botswana because we have a wealth of products that are very unique in how we produce them to Botswana specifically looking in my paper at uh, beef we have beef that we think is very well known (laughs) (laughs) that we think is very well known apparently Uh, we have the best beef in the world one of the I, I, I entered my research with that mindset that yes. yeah we have the best beef in the world yes yeah. but the literature was not affirming of that position yeah <laughs> so it was kind of like a, a you know a, a pause a moment of pause for me because i was like oh wait what do you mean because i'm seeing all all of these papers about beef from argentina beef from spain beef from japan you know but i was like no we're not i see social media posts that say we have the best beef i'm not seeing academic research and reports and journals that say we do but my argument in my paper is it's not that we don't have the best beef it's that we failed to put in a structure in place to ensure that the quality of our beef um is competitive in the way that the quality of champagne is competitive. Yeah. So I'm able to to read about Kobe beef from Japan, for example, yeah. because they have that geographical indication in place. And, you know, when you ever see you see Kobe beef, you immediately associate it with certain qualities, certain origins. Yeah. We don't have that for Botswana beef. Yeah. And it's something that we could be looking into uh, that I recommend in my paper that we should be looking into. Yeah. Um, so that next time somebody says we have the best beef, they, 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 you know, there's a journal article that proves it. Yeah. <laughs> but then which uh, location would actually um, be that geographical indication to say uh, maybe we yeah. could have a Botswana beef that is Yeah. I from mean, here? To go without disclosing too much my recommendations. Yes. But, you know, you have regions like the Hansi region. Because, yeah. you know, when you're building a geographical indication, you're looking at things like, you know, you're looking at the climate, you're looking at common practices, you're looking at, you know, methods of production that are shared amongst people in that area. Yeah. And you have an area like Hansi, for example, where, you know, you have similar similar climates, um, similar breeds that are raised in that area, similar practices that are adopted for the raising of the cattle and the processing of the beef and all of that um so it's a good start yeah um i think if there's anybody who's watching this and thinking hmm, what are the other recommendations about how this can be yeah. implemented you you know where to find yeah. <laughs> and also talking about that because i think uh we really need to move to a point where our research papers are trying to solve uh, the problems that i in our economy mm-hmm. and who would you say would be uh, the people who would be best fit to maybe tap into um, your research paper mm-hmm. and look maybe at the different um, value chains that might come out yeah. of that uh, paper alone um, I think firstly 
public policy decision makers. So people in government, um, parastatals, I think those are the perfect people to be taking up the recommendations because at the end of the day, those are the people that set policy. Yeah. I think research institutions as well, because what I'm trying to do is the academic during my time in in, in, in my I, I produced several papers uh, some of them deal with film sector some of them deal with you know the agricultural sector but all of them exploring intellectual property in those fields yeah. so they are very different areas and they're very different um stakeholders that could be engaged but largely government institutions academic institutions and private actors as well to say if you're if you're willing if you're looking to maximize the potential of whatever intellectual property you have um then you know those recommendations apply to you as well it's not for you to wait for a policy setting decision it's also for you to say um this is what's possible and this is what i can do i recently had a conversation with uh, i recently had a conversation with some farmers um who were dealing with um basically the the produce in from from their farms uh and how they wanted to distinguish that in the market and looking at what intellectual property issues arise around that so you know those are people that should they be um willing i'm very able and happy to yeah. assist but there's something like someone like that who would then be um I'll say the custodians or the owners of that um IP mm-hmm. you know looking at you know the different people in that value mm-hmm. um chain is it now the the farmer and the because I believe if the yeah. farmer doesn't have that cow or raise mm-hmm. the cow or give it some certain feed and all of that then the person who's at the retail level mm-hmm. uh wouldn't be a benefiting you know you bring up a very interesting point because one of the findings of my paper is that for geographical indication specifically there is such an unequal distribution of wealth or value derived so you find that geographical indications are based on location practice right so practice informs um the product what the product becomes yeah the custodians of those practices are usually the farmers on the ground it's my grandmother kolapeng mm-hmm. right so those are the people that maintain these practices but when you look at the value chain the people that get the biggest share out of the value chain are the end product so the retailers for example are the ones because i walk into the store and i see the champagne sticker on it yeah. and i buy it at a premium because of that labeling right but the person that was harvesting the grapes and knows and actually carries that knowledge gets the least share out of this. Yeah. So one of my recommendations is as we implement a GI system for Botswana, a geographical indication system for Botswana, we need to set up or uh, have policy measures that ensure equal distribution of wealth along the value chain yeah. because um without the practice you don't have the GI without mm. the people that are able to finance you know the business and take the product to market you don't have the GI without the retailers you don't have the GI in the market so mm. we need to be able to ensure that everybody gets their fair share yeah so mm. it, during your stay at um South Korea and going through your studies um what sort of culture around maybe also the intellectual property mm. um sector or yeah. segment uh, do you think that uh, we could maybe um, leverage from or just get a leaf from that paper there's a lot there's a lot we can because yeah. um one of the things that is fascinating about south korea is 
it's a country without natural resources. Yeah. So when they gained independence, they were coming from war. They gained independence relatively around the same time as us, plus minus six or so years. Yeah. Um, so they were coming from a war. They did not have minerals that, you know, we were blessed with a bounty of diamonds. Yeah. Um, but they did not have such a thing. So they had to rely on the production of skills and knowledge yeah. in order to push their economy. And um, it's exciting to have experienced that culture and that institute or, or that kind of institute, country level institution at this time, because we're at a time in Botswana where the biggest thing on, everyone mind, on everyone's mind is transition to a knowledge-based economy. Yeah. We are trying to become the next South Korea. Yeah. So there is a lot that we can learn from them in terms of uh, prioritizing the product, prioritizing firstly the development of human capital that is able to produce uh, knowledge, capacitating our systems um, in such a way that they are able to capture and deploy knowledge in a useful way, capacitating our systems in such a way that we are able to derive economic value both locally and internationally from the knowledge and the creativity that we produce. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I think we're going to leave it there. Um, yeah. Unless there's any any more that you would want to to add um, to our conversation today. It's just so, you know, it could be a mindset uh, shift to somebody who's watching yeah. um, out there and... I mean, I'm, 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 I like the fact that you bring the mindset shift. Going back to things that are happening in Botswana, I think the biggest, one of the biggest campaigns happening right now is Arjunjing, Arjunjing, Mirapolo, and etc., etc. You know, and I think it's very important because what we've done. So it's not that. So maybe to draw a bit from my proposal when I was applying for school. Um, I had to explain why I want to study this. And I said, coming from the African continent, I witness creativity every day in both the artistic sense and in both the functional sense, because we have to deal with so many social and e environmental and economic issues that we are forced to be creative about it, right? We are forced to, you know, you, you have to learn what if you take this piece of wood and you put it together with this one, you can make something, right? Yeah. We have, we are forced to create, um, music and stories that address the issues that we deal with. So on the continent, creativity is something that we experience every day, yet we, are yet to set up the kind of systems that actually capture the true value of um, of what we are producing every day. Uh, so as we're changing our mindsets, one of the things that we need to change is have a sense of self-recognition, a sense of self-worth to be able to say, it's not just that... Um, could it, it is a wealth of intellectual property gifted to you by your own history that yeah. you are able to take your mind and apply to and produce something entirely new because if you don't do that you're going to be watching it on Netflix yeah yeah. <laughs> um, I don't remember if I remember it. Wait, you, yeah, no, you're yeah. going to be watching it on Netflix, and the Americans are going to be making hundreds of millions of dollars on yeah. it, and then we're going to be crying uh, because we've. And this is already happening. A lot of African stories are being told. Yeah. The money is not coming to Africa. Yeah. A lot of African technologies are being adopted abroad. The money is not coming to Africa. Even in fashion, there was a huge case uh, a few years ago where I think it was. I can't name. I don't want to get sued. Yeah. Um, they took the 
Basutu blanket. And yeah. it was like the main thing of their fashion show in Paris. And people were saying, well, how do you take something that is so culturally significant, but you're benefiting from it? Yeah. And the people, the communities that it's coming from are not getting anything. And the thing is, these, these are, sorry if I'm rambling, but these are things that, um, there are structures in place. Yeah. There's a, a treaty called the Sokoman Protocol that Botswana's party to. The Sokoman Protocol requires governments to set up uh, structures that ensure that communities where traditional things like, uh, you know, Mainani, uh, what we do with the devil's claw and things like that, yeah. to ensure that those communities benefit. We just need to act on it. Yeah. Yeah. You need to act on it. Uh, guys, thank you very much for joining us on our podcast today. And um, I think we're just going to leave it there. Um, if you want to get in the conversation, our hashtag is Kumbalange Africa across different social media platforms. 7651992 on WhatsApp. Bye. This is the Convo Lounge. Expression. Exposure. Experience.